Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today I'm joined by none other than the Simulcast co-producer, Jesse Spur. How are you, Jesse? Good. It's been a while since I've been on this side of the mic, which is really cool. I know, I'm excited. And uh, it's interesting because today we're going to talk about something that's actually uh, related to your work, which is exciting. And for our listeners, Simulcast listeners, I think it's going to be something that is very applicable to simulation, even though it isn't simulation. So just to frame this up a little bit for our listeners, we're going to be talking about safety too. So this is a concept that we'll expand on more in the podcast, but we've, which we've certainly talked about uh, in some other episodes about how do we use simulation and other techniques in order to learn from our success and an in order to build system resilience. So I think even more fundamentally, one of the things that I'm going to be trying to draw out from Jesse's story here is how do some of the skills and concepts that we do learn about in simulation translate to actually making care better in the clinical workplace? So Jesse, in order to set this up, you're going to have to tell us a little bit about what you do in your day job uh, as distinct from your simulcast co-producer role. Yeah, awesome. Not too complicated. So I'm an intensive care nurse um, working just north of Brisbane in a fairly small uh, ICU, but with fairly high level capability. So essentially everything but tertiary services in the hospital. Um, my role there is a clinical nurse, which means uh, as well as just general bedside care, um, I do a lot of team leaderships and then have uh, have some portfolios with regards to safety and quality, research, quality improvement sort of activities. Um, and also I've kind of navigated towards a, an interest and portfolio in our team wellbeing stuff as well. So where this sort of came from, I guess, is is we've just to sort of set the background, we've traditionally had portfolios that over the last since about 2009 when the national standards um, for safety and quality in healthcare came through. Um, that align to a national standard. Uh, it's since the implementation of those, after about two or three years, it really rubbed me thinking it felt very forced because we don't do business isolated like that. The national standards are spread through the core activities that we do, and there may be many involved in one um, clinical interaction. So it always felt fairly artificial and largely ended up with a poster on the wall and um, analysing a few medication incidents or blood incidents or um, pressure injuries or any one of the other um, issues. So a very kind of traditional safety one approach to there's a problem, um, put out a memo, <laughs> take it to a committee and make a decision and fix it. So that's kind of where our portfolios have laid previously. We've had a bit of a shift um, in those over the last couple of years to more business oriented, but still have had some carriage of those sort of more traditional core safety and quality portfolios. Yeah, and just for our non-Australian listeners, uh, obviously these are national standards, but they are probably similar to what they would be in many other countries. So one is about blood management, one is about, as you said, medication safety, one is about recognising clinical deterioration, and these are something against which all hospitals in Australia are supposed to set up a quality and safety framework. And I guess what you're saying is 
it was a, felt like a very siloed approach to improving care, given that, as you say, any given clinical interaction is going to involve multiple of these uh, standards. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So uh, then what happened that uh, led to a change? Well, I guess we've, we've, like everyone, been in a bit of a boggy quagmire over the last two years, 18 months to two years, um, pandemic-related and other um, just pressures of the healthcare system as well. Um, we've had two and a half, I guess, moves in, in that 18 months um, where we split our unit initially when we had the first wave, and I'd put that in inverted commas being a... Um, sort of in Queensland where we haven't really had a wave of COVID, fortunately. Um, but we split our unit into two and had a COVID pod and uh, and took over a, an adjacent clinical space. Um, then we moved out of our permanent unit up to a ward-based space as a temporary ICU while we got a pandemic, like a pandemic-funded refurbishment of our ICU to increase our um, isolation and negative pressure cap room capabilities. Um, and that was about six months. And during that time, we experienced a an observed spike in medication incidents. So important to sort of set the scene because there was a hell of a lot of cognitive load and other issues here around um, expanding and retracting teams with temporary staff coming in for the predicted COVID surge and then leaving it, um, a whole range of stuff there. So we had a couple of months of um, quantitative blip in our medication incidents. Um, and I started hearing the term, we're having a lot of medication errors. There were emails flying around. There was, the word error was being used consistently. There was lots of flurries of activity and memos and um, letters to staff and all sorts of bits and pieces, but nothing really that felt like it was going to change and also an intuitive feel that there weren't that many human individual mistakes being made despite the word errors being used and I think that's product of the the system of safety that we're working in rather than having a negative culture. Yeah and I think most clinicians can identify with this because as you say the whispers and the emails start and then there's a great drive to two things one is find out who or what is causing this, usually with the idea that there's a unitary uh, source of this error. Uh, and secondly, a lot of admonition of staff to do better, please, and uh, check things more, please, and try and uh, exhortations to personal vigilance. So I feel like this is quite familiar for us, but uh, it sounds like having read a little bit around it, you thought maybe that wasn't the way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I've for quite a long time been interested in uh, modern safety science is what I'd call it. So safety two approaches um, right back from about 2012 when I did a short course in the science of safety in healthcare through Johns Hopkins University. And that kind of really got me onto some of the concepts of safety two um, unit based safety programs and a range of other sort of tools of the uh, tools of the trade and the vocabulary of that uh, concept or theoretical approach to safety and sort of just been lying dormantly waiting for an opportunity to use it and this really smacked of a Trojan horse to me um, the medication safety is a really big ticket item and it's incredibly important because it's something that in particularly in an ICU context, we've got a decreased margin for error with a medication incident. So 
um, our patients are pretty fragile to start with and things can go very wrong with an incident that may otherwise cause no harm in a slightly less sick population. We also do huge numbers of events of medication administration and the vast majority are high risk medications as well. So it's a, it's kind of the flagship safety item I think within nursing care and also within the medical management of patients in the ICU. Yeah. So, and I think yeah, one of the other challenges here is you don't really know what the denominator is in many cases because as you say we might say something like we've had five medication inc- incidents this month but it might be that there's actually 5000 uh episodes of medication activity and that can be hard then to see things in perspective absolutely so uh, when when something sort of is a bit of a mismatch to uh, to what you're intuitively feeling as a clinician working in the area um, I tend to get a little bit curious and I went to uh, actually our line manager my, my boss came into the tea room one day and was just having a chat with us about the medication safety issues medication incidents and he's like i'm really struggling to know what to do here and i said i can help but i want to do it my way and so thankfully i've got a a really good relationship with him and he's gone that sounds really interesting let's let's have a chat about what that means and so um the long and the short of it was the starting point was getting some offline time to do a integrative review of our medication safety snapshot that included some clinical incident review for the previous six months um, looking at sort of any patterns that emerge from it looking at some i guess low-hanging fruit for some immediate um, point scores that we could get to improve with with minimal effort um, to get some wins and also then some proposed steps forward so out of that back in november last year came uh, uh, i guess we ended up with a product of a bit of a roadmap towards medication safety one big component of that that i proposed and was very grateful to get traction right up to our hospital leadership was the idea of establishing an icu safety task force rather than just doing a medication safety working group where the skills built a little bit and then dissipates at the end of it we all sort of know that working group is a bit of an oxymoron as well. Um, so went for uh, sort of threw back to that idea of the unit ba- comprehensive unit-based safety programs that were described by the Johns Hopkins team um, to really build up skill and knowledge in safety science and application within the working clinicians on the floor, some ability to analyze our work and then make rapid cycle changes um, and then also then interact with the more formalized committee structures within the hospital as well. So we got it, got the green light for that to go ahead. And that was then positioned as the first order of business of that task force would be tackling medication safety as a defined problem. And then once we've got a plan of action in place and some interventions and evaluation um, rolling forward with that, we would move that group on to another identified safety or, mm. or risk issue in the unit. Yeah, and so this is very interesting. So you don't abandon the so-called safety one approach. You're still doing your root cause analysis type approach, trying to see if there are trends, patterns, using audit. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that as a starting point. But it sounds like then you're shifting to, and I'm reminded of 
Mary Dixon Woods's crew who published that paper, How to Have a Very Safe Maternity Unit. And it seems this is as much values-based as it is process-based. And it starts with this uh, supposition that everyone has to believe in excellence, everyone has to believe in improvement, and everyone can be an agent of that improvement. Absolutely. And I, I think the biggest sort of key in that is the workforce majority that is nursing. Um, we have a, real, a, a proportionally higher workforce in ICU than, say, a general ward area does because of the um, ratio of nurse to patient care that we provide. Um, we also have generally quite a highly trained nursing group with postgraduate qualifications, um, therefore a slightly higher scientific literacy than um, some other areas that don't have that density of um, continued higher education and that all kind of lend itself to being a no-brainer of having quite a high proportion of or i guess a, a relative proportion of nurses in that group to other professions as well and nurses are largely the last point of um, failure mitigation or successful adaptation in the system that either prevents harm or can potentially lead to excellence um, so it was the opportunity to explore some of the really positive measures or what um, the term I was sort of keyed into back when listening to um, Peter Diekman and Mary Patterson's podcast that you did in 2017, I think, learning from success was um, positive deviance and really starting to look at why stuff goes right most of the time and harness some of that. And then when things go really, really well, what did we do differently to what we normally do? Mm, that's really good. And the other thing I'll put in the... Uh episode notes for the simulcast listeners is an article by uh, Rebecca Lawton uh, about positive deviance in particular. All right, well, tell us, Jesse, what does this actually look like? Help us out practically here. You've got a group of you who are trying to work on this, uh, and it seems to me, having spoken to you before and seen some of your materials, that you sort of approached it a little bit like a simulation workshop. Absolutely. It, it felt not too dissimilar to a lot of the faculty development work that we do together. Um, I guess right down to the the style of delivery of the workshop that we, we ran um, being structured but not prescriptive. Um, so having lots of room for learning conversations through the day. Um, the where we sort of got to was did a little bit of pre-work with regards to using the um, commission, uh, sorry, the Joint Commission of Safety and Quality in Healthcare Safety Culture Survey from the US, which is at least provi it provides a validated and often published baseline to get a bit of a fingerprint of what's going on with safety culture in the unit. It didn't give us any great revelations, but the thought is there to get some data as a baseline um, with potential to looking at evaluating this process afterwards and having a multimodal evaluation of it. There's also a lot of discussions um, with staff as to what their impressions were. So semi-formal interviews that I was doing during that um, baseline analysis and some broad recommendations that came out of that. That got us to the point of recruiting through an EOI process um, that we put an open recruitment out for members for the team and ended up with eight nurses of varying, like quite broadly varying experience from a new grad right through to someone with 30 plus years of intensive care experience and sort of everything in between. 
um, uh, an ICU consultant, uh, staff specialist, and uh, for the first body of work, a senior clinical pharmacist with critical care with the critical care portfolio, who was also obviously fairly invaluable for the first workshop component. From there, we um, were fortunate that uh, there was a lot of support for offline time. Um, we had we had eight applicants from nursing point of view, and we were able to actually um, take on all of those, which is great because it provides a little bit. We've I've got normal workforce churn like everywhere else, and um, it provides a little bit of, I guess, resilience in the group from numbers point of view. Um, the other thing that was really, I guess, quite positive out of the recruitment process was there was a fair degree of ethnic diversity that looks and feels like the staff makeup of our unit, which I think is super important when we're starting to tackle why things happen the way they happen and having those views and using a more a method of learning conversations to do that, um, having a group that looks and feels like the majority of the team or, or looks and feels like the makeup of the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that point, putting together a, a workshop design as kind of an inauguration of that group and um, a, a heavy part of that for me was was teaming, was rapidly pulling that group together and making them feel um, a little bit special, a bit different, um, and that more through some new skills and knowledge and vocabulary um, and ways of looking at the unit and the work that we do rather than any sort of kind of uh, superiority complex over the other plebs that are doing the work. Um, So we started off with a plan of doing a half day looking at um, the foundational sort of theory and philosophy of safety, safety two methods and the tools of the trade. Um, And then uh, the second part of the day was, um, for want of a better term, a design sprint exercise, so a human-centred design exercise that I facilitated through looking at medication safety as the problem. So, And we kind of used that as a bit of a, um, again, a balcony and dance floor approach of going, this is the design sprint we're doing, and then pulling back and debriefing the exercises as to why we did them that way and what are we getting out of this as opposed to other ways we could have tackled it. So building the skills in the team. Yeah, that's a very capacity-building approach, and it means that it's not so you-dependent. Uh, and as this group or, or uh, others might join the group, you build your capacity to solve the new problems and more people are thinking about the process as much as the endpoint. Uh, and looking through it, I mean, I imagine it was a little bit of a cognitive step up for some folks who'd never heard of things like emergence and decomposability and exnovation. Um, one of the troubles, actually, with these things is they often bring with them new vocabularies, and that is a bit of a, a mixed blessing, I'd say. Yeah, look, I tried very hard to meet everyone where they're at with this. Um, I've read more than... I probably should have on a lot of it because it's piqued my interest. And I think it's also stuff that's fantastic to have in your toolbox as a simulation educator, facilitator, um, because it gives you a way to frame up your observations um, to teams and about the system. Um, But one of the interesting things was I, I did start with a fairly baseline assumption that probably most weren't even familiar with the concept of psychological safety or had some thought about what it might be. So we actually started off there. Um, 
started there from a couple of ways of a pre-brief around the room where get um, which role modeled a lot of actually list active listening and um, getting everyone to uh, introduce themselves and also get their take on why they joined this team, why they what had motivated them to join the team, and what they sort of knew about um, safety science or safety and quality. And that was really both diagnostic, but also got everyone talking and sort of role modeled, I guess, the foundational stuff for psychological safety. Then um, I think one of the key elements was showing a brief TED talk of Amy Edmondson's, which was in relation to medication safety. So some of her initial thesis work around psychological safety and people were, all of the group were quite shocked as to what came out of that, that organizations that were high performing organizations um, had more medication incident reports. Um, and that the, that was a big part of what was posited out of that was that these are organizations that feel safe to talk about uncomfortable things and mistakes and problems in the system openly. Um, so there was broad agreement that so this psychological safety thing is kind of probably the magic bullet for our unit. Yeah. Um, and it also helped people understand the bits in our unit that felt good and some of the things that weren't working, that haven't been working in terms of cultural elements. So that was a, an, an important starting point in terms of vocabulary and principles. And just we kind of agreed that that would be our above all our working philosophy. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I think this is very different to Safety One, which told us and almost bludgeoned us that this was a no-blame culture, but then everyone just felt very blamed whenever there was a problem because we were trying to root out the cause and who was the cause, uh, yeah. whereas I guess what you're saying here is it is a highly prized value to report an adverse event or uh, something that doesn't um, work out as well as it should have because that will lead to improvement. Yeah, now our reporting culture has been good, which is why we had high numbers of incidents, which was one of the things I did find there was really only a, a couple of near patient harm episodes out of all of the incidents. And many were what I'd call more administrative um, check based things that largely for me show that our checks and balances systems work. We have a process where the access nurse or team leader does safety bay checks and checks all running infusions um, twice each day. So at the start of each shift, uh, new shift. And the large majority of these incidents were near misses just reported by, and they were things like missing a missing second signature or an infusion that had let, um, overran its expiry time, usually by a bit. So the patterns of things that were that we were worried about are those those errors that crossed shifts unnoticed and then got picked up because um, they were more failures in our sort of resilience structures mm. um and that gave us some really good stuff to talk about on the day and sort of really shape our our concepts about what the problems or problem is with medication safety so it sounds like you've done this at a couple of levels you've been obviously working on the medication safety but you've also been building an approach that you hope is going to be a template for other quality and safety challenges or aspirations that you have which include some key elements so psychological safety underpinning things uh having this value of improvement and i think 
using your design sprint and thinking about design thinking or whatever you want to call it, but recognising that the clinicians are going to be the agents of improvement here and recognising the incremental ways that uh, better can look. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, maybe could you take a little sideline here for us, Jesse, and uh, help just make the explicit connection to perhaps the experience you've had in SIM and for the listeners who are engaged in simulation, what do you think they can take away from this? It's it's funny because my experience isn't unique, but it's probably a little different to what a lot of people have had in that I stepped out of the clinical bedside work relatively early in my career as a nurse. Um, I was only working bedside nursing for a little under four years in intensive care before um, having an opportunity to become an intensive care nurse educator and then have spent the following seven years working through a range of different roles um, in education and safety, more safety and quality clinical governance roles um, and and corporate education roles as well. So gathered a, a big experience that was somewhat, I guess, by stepping back and looking at looking at the work through thing through simulation through observation um, as a part of the team but all, also a bit of an other but then three years ago coming back to a clinical bedside role and bringing that kind of and it was really eye-opening coming back to a clinical bedside role with all of these different ways of looking at the work from within now not being an other being part of the team and having people confiding and venting and debriefing all the time with me my colleagues um doing that going having that different way of looking at the system and i think simulation by and large gives us that opportunity to actually deconstruct and manipulate it's almost like a bit bit like being dr strange you can kind of pause clinical work and sort of manipulate it have a look at it move some equipment and then restart it so uh, I, yeah i sort of fancy fancy that analogy a bit but that's that being able to then do that and have the bandwidth to do that when you're working clinically is really quite I think um, for me has been a transformative and fairly magical experience Mm. um, and definitely makes me appreciate work much more being able to do that and so in a lot of ways, I've tried to bottle some of that experience and create a bit of a boot camp and on-ramping to getting some of the critical knowledge and experience that I've gathered over the past seven or eight years um, into other members of our team and opening some of the sources of that. Mm. So it sounds like there's probably a few things there. There's concepts like psychological safety that uh, are going to be able to draw into this sort of a challenge. There are skill sets like leading a learning conversation uh, and there is knowledge such as about safety too and how it can be applied. And then I I think the other one maybe is just perspectives on systems thinking. And I noticed that one of the things you'd sent to that safety task force was the hierarchy of intervention effects. And education and training is there, but it's actually a pretty 
low impact on uh, if that's your intervention. And I think we should be thinking about that. We need to do SIM for education and training, but we should also be recognised that it does have a role in many of the other things on this hierarchy, like how do you develop the right rules and policies? How do you simplify and standardise through some design thinking and whether that's through uh, large-scale simulation or this just iterative approach that you're describing and whether you can test out whether automation or computerization is going to be of benefit because we also know that, for instance, our, I don't know about you, but our integrated electronic medical record has seen a significant rise in medication safety incidents, shall we say. So really testing out how how is this thing going to work in practice. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I guess you've described the process pretty well, Jesse, but uh, have you actually uh, had any wins? things starting to look up what's happening well i I think uh, yes on a lot of levels um wins in a really engaged group that have already gone out and looking at things differently there's been some a couple of incidents that they've that have been written up by members of the team that are using a much more descriptive format when they write the incident up which was something we discussed as a um as something to train through the unit and role model through the unit as we go. So jumping on opportunities to work with staff as they're doing recording an incident so that there's some more meat there to actually analyze rather than just this happened. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because most of the time the person recording the incident has a good reason um, as to uh, what, or a good rationale as to what may have prevented it. And that often gets missed in, great detail um mm-hmm. the other thing i guess that's that's somewhat unique about this process is that it's quite iterative and little changes can be jumped on quite quickly or at every point in the process so um, even as we were kind of waiting to get the opportunity to get the team together there was some really simple changes that were made in terms of largely eliminating um we a, a lot of drugs that we used often, say fentanyl infusions, for example, we had two different available concentrations for an ongoing infusion. And one of the errors we were seeing or incidents we were seeing was that the prescription in the electronic medical system, Metavision, didn't match the infusion that was running. So it was double strength um, versus single strength. And so we sort of raised the question that why have two strengths like this is an incredibly cheap drug where actually by having single strength we're duplicating workload and duplicating error points in the chain mm. um, a lot and it w- actually came back to one of those really silly ones that every time you went to the drug cupboard to check out fentanyl as a as a pair of nurses doing that role you were moaning and going why the hell have we got a single strength fentanyl order yet this has been happening for two or three years so everybody knew why the hell have we got a single strength fentanyl order we're having to change the syringe every three or four hours and so we went well why what's why have that when it's actually causing both administrative or what I call bureaucratic incidents where there's been a verbal order given potentially for double strength but it's been chartered um so a whole range of things so that's those sort of changes we've flowed through with a number of things that we had duplicate um or i guess different options for concentrations um without a really good rationale for doing so and have eliminated um the second option and using i guess a a 
the approach of listening to the staff that are reconstituting and administering it gone with the double strength concentration in every single case because it eliminates workload um, improves workflows and allows the often the second person checking who's usually a senior member of staff in an access or team leader role to do the other more important stuff than just going and signing drugs out of a book and counter signing in a into mm-hmm. the medical system so um, that's that's an example that's happened along the way by no means earth shattering but again just an example of listening to what a couple of nurses were yeah. saying every time they went to the medication cupboard. I was going to say, it, it sounds like it's a process that has actually allowed the uh, sort of clinician knowledge to come to the forefront and be actioned upon. Absolutely. Uh, which, you know, is sometimes harder than you would think it would seem. Yeah. And a, lo- All right, well- a lot of other things that have just sort of come through have just been um, workflow adaptations and eliminating sort of dead processes in it um, eliminating processes that cause or adding in a um, laptop at our Pixis station, so the automated medication dispensary station, so that we're, because we're on a computer-based pr- uh, system for ICU, um, we're not having to write write down notes of what we need to get on a piece of paper and take it over there. We can actually log in and see the prescription next to the device. So little simple sort of things like that that have really improved workflow. And that's been kind of, a again, a fundamental tenet of the group going forward that the best solutions are going to be ones that release time. Mm, absolutely. Well, they're lucky to have you, Jesse. Uh, and it sounds like a very good thing that's happened within your local context and it seems like there's some both lessons from sim as well as some lessons for simulation practitioners uh but can i ask you as we kind of start to wrap up here what would be your take-homes and advice to people who are identifying a similar safety challenge maybe have got some of those skill sets from their simulation world uh some principles or advice as to how they might approach it i think Probably like always, just assume that it's going to take a lot longer than you think it will um, for a number of reasons, Um, interruptions and other issues, especially when you're trying to get a number of staff offline to do something. Um, But also assume that there's a hell of a lot more capacity in the knowledge of the team than we probably think a lot of the times. I've always been surprised, well, not, not being surprised, but I've always been excited by what I've seen when we've given teams an opportunity to stretch. And that's one of the things I really have enjoyed always with working with you with the faculty development work is by loosely structuring things, we're able to actually go right to that edge of where people are comfortable with what they know so far quite quickly. And I guess that's where the magic happens. So that's probably my biggest learning um, learning from that. But also um, don't underestimate how much a group of predominantly nurses will talk and the facilitation skills required to actually navigate back to broader strategy um, rather than ending up talking about small operational points. Um, Mm. And I think that's true of a lot of clinicians, um, particularly clinicians that haven't been forced to sit through two-hour-long committee meetings multiple times a week. 
the but it's a nice uh, lesson from sim isn't it to certainly talk about the granular examples but to be able to extract that or relate that back to some general principles that are going to take us into different granular examples absolutely and i guess the other big lesson from sim has been have some structure to the learning conversation so have a framework but not a cage um, to the learning conversations. And I actually, like a lot of things, use uh, use a lot of the steps of the PEARLS framework for framing up these learning conversations. So setting the scene and then just having different the different tools in the toolbox of that kind of facilitated um, discussion versus there's moments of teaching um, versus mm-hmm. some coaching and deeper dives and exploring rationale. So um, I think that for me has been an imp- probably the most important tool for helping those learning conversations happen. Yeah, it's the Pearls framework, the gift that keeps on giving. Sure is. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Jesse. So interesting. Uh, we will be interested to check in every now and again to see how that's going and what new uh, safety and quality challenges you take on with your task force and see how the process evolves and uh, maybe see how SIM continues to interact with us because I'm sure some of your safety challenges might involve simulation uh, modalities that are more familiar to some of our SIM, sim class listeners. Absolutely. There's a, there's a number of translational simulation aspects in our plan around medication safety as well. So we've got a few of the low-hanging fruit, I guess, prototype actions out and embedded already and then we're starting to move on to strategies where there's some more diagnostic work to be done and a lot of that is through I guess thin slice type simulations so definitely watch this space Mm, fantastic all right well unfortunately time to finish this conversation but looking forward to having you voice back on the podcast not just this time but in the future Jesse so thanks again for your time absolutely thanks Vic 